You are now listening to the May 28th broadcast of Unity in Christ. This hour, we have Nearer to My God to Thee, the sermon, and Equipping the Saints. First, let's begin with Nearer My God to Thee. From Near My God to Thee, where we look into the background of a hymn and reflect upon its meaning in a deeper way. In this age, one of the professions that teenagers dream of is being a celebrity. They want to be a star. By singing, dancing, and acting, they can receive the people's love and admiration and earn a lot of money. Teenagers with such talent will naturally dream of this kind of lifestyle. It's a very attractive career since they get money for doing what they like and receive the people's praise and adoration. But this kind of career is very uncommon for most people. However, because of the nature of being a celebrity, it is not easy to look to Jesus when one is a star. Of course, there are celebrities with true faith, but compared to the sports or entertainment industry, there are only a small number of them with true faith. If we don't realize that Jesus is the only true star, then by our nature, we try to take that position. There was a person who was a star. When he realized that Jesus was the true star, he laid down all his fame and wealth and lowered himself to faithfully serve Jesus. The hymn that he composed and sung expressed his life and it became loved by many people until now. Let's listen to the hymn called I'd Rather Have Jesus for a Moment. I'd rather have Jesus than silver or gold I'd rather be His than have riches untold I'd rather have Jesus than houses or land Yes, I'd rather be led by His nail-pierced hand Than to be the queen of a vast domain And be held in sin's dread I'd rather have Jesus than silver or gold. I'd rather be His than have riches untold. I'd rather have Jesus than houses or lands. I'd rather be led by His nail-pierced hand. There is a hymn beloved by many people. This hymn was written by a woman named Rhea Miller in 1922. However, this hymn became widely known to the world by George Beverly Shea. In 1932, he added a new melody to the lyrics and sang it as well. Why did George Beverly Shea add a new melody to Rhea Miller's lyrics and sing it? We'll find out through a drama. I'd 
George Beverly Shea was born in 1909 in Winchester, Ontario, Canada. His father was a pastor. Ever since he was young, he sang hymns at the church where his father was a minister. The church members were greatly blessed by his beautiful voice, and for that reason, George grew up receiving much praise from the people. For that reason, George moved to America to study music and enrolled at Hofton College in New York. However, due to the sudden economic crisis in America, George had to give up his study. He stopped his study and began working at an insurance company in New York. George, organize these files by noon. I need them in the afternoon. Yes, I'll have them ready. Also, deliver this file to Fred Allen, the chief programmer for the NBC radio and television network later in the afternoon. I can't go in the afternoon since I have a lot of work, so please go instead of me. Yes, I will do so. In the afternoon, George went to meet Fred Allen, the chief programmer of NBC. Mr. Allen, I brought the insurance files. Oh, thank you. Yes, well, yes. Well then, goodbye. Wait a second. What is your name? My name is George Shea. George, you have a nice voice. Do you happen to sing? Sing? Ah, yes. I was in the middle of majoring in music, but due to financial issues, I'm currently taking time off from school. Oh, is that right? I knew you had a nice voice. Would you like to sing in the program today? Sing in the program? By a coincidental chance, George Shea sang Go Moses in a radio program. After he sang in the program, the people called the broadcast to find out who he was. Thank you for calling the NBC broadcast. Oh, you want to find out about the singer who sang Go Moses during yesterday's program? He's a singer named George Beverly Shea. Mr. Allen, I have been receiving endless calls asking about who George is. Is that so? Oh, he's a great hit. George Shea was known all over America with one appearance in the program. Numerous people were moved by his song. George began to appear regularly on the broadcast and he became a popular singer. He no longer experienced financial difficulties and began to accumulate fame and wealth. Here comes George, the star. Hello, Mr. Allen. You are so popular these days. It's all because of you, Mr. Allen. Thank you. No, it's because you're such a great singer. I want to introduce you to entrepreneur Mr. Ronald and Governor Campbell. Ah, oh, yes, what an honor. I am George Shea. Nice to meet you. I enjoy listening to your music these days. George Beverly Shea was born as a pastor's child and lived a faithful spiritual life ever since he was young. One day by chance, he sang for a radio broadcast and rose in popularity. He no longer had financial difficulty. His name was known throughout America and he had a personal connection with numerous people. However, while his popularity was rising, 
his face was getting smaller. Due to his busy schedule, he wasn't able to attend Sunday services at church. He no longer read the Bible or prayed like he used to. How was he able to return back to the Lord? Next time, we'll continue the story of George Beverly Shea, who confessed that he'd rather have Jesus. I'll see you next week. Goodbye. Than anything 
Coming up next is a sermon by Pastor Joshua Vincent of Trinity Bible Church in Phoenix, Arizona. Today's topic is Reconciled Enemies. I hope you have a blessed time with Pastor Joshua. This morning we're looking at Romans 5, 6 to 11. Back in Romans, where Paul has so far declared that the cross, and we're going to see this this morning, the cross is the grand gesture that proves God's otherworldly love for us. In other words, every earthly love, the greatest examples that we can conjure up, they all pale in comparison. They are all a little bit off the mark of the unique kind of love that God has demonstrated at the cross. It was there that he held up his symbol, his display of his great love for his people. And that cross, of course, was more than just a grand gesture. It was actually a cross that effectively saved the people and brought them to himself. And so we find that Paul is heralding this this morning. See, Paul is shifting his focus in Romans 5 to 8, as we saw last week, from showing how sinners are saved from God's wrath by faith alone to a hopeful reality that is ours in Christ. And so as we look at Romans 5 to 8, we're looking at some of the most hopeful chapters in all of the Bible, talking about who we are and what is ours in Christ, what it has brought to us who are a people of faith. Now, there are some of the most encouraging chapters, but you'll remember that we just left off in Romans 5, 5 last week, where Paul emphasizes the subjective experience the Christian has of the love of God. Love, verse 5. Paul, there again, you'll remember, he says this, hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. I mean, those, those words, we could preach on those words for years. And so we do. But the cross is more than a grand gesture. Uh, for one, God's love is both qualitatively and quantitatively different than the greatest human loves that humanity can point to throughout history and art. And add to that that God pours his divine love into the hearts of his people by the power of the Holy Spirit, which regenerates them and enlightens them to love as God loves. See, that's something that we sense and feel. Verse 5 is, is giving us pictures of something that you can't imagine would not stir and motivate and move the affections of every human who experienced the Holy Spirit and the love of God. But what do you do when you don't feel or sense the love of God. I'm wondering this morning if you've ever questioned God's love for you. So our big idea this morning, if you're taking notes, is this. It's that the logic of God's love at the cross leads to assurance both today and on the last day. We're going to be talking about the, the logic of God's love at the cross and how it should give birth to assurance both today and on the last day. First, we'll notice in verse 6 that Paul says that Christ died for us and timing is everything. So if you look again with me in Romans, we're going to be in Romans chapter 5, verse 6. We're going to track what Paul has to say for us. 
Here's what he says. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. Now the four that connects verses 5 and 6 is signaling that Paul is making that shift in focus from the subjective feeling in verse 5 to the objective ground in verse 6. And you'll notice that Paul is speaking about the way that God loved us while we were still weak. So you might ask yourself, what does weak mean? Because weak can be taken in a lot of different ways. Uh, Weak, as you look at it, and as I've studied this week, I, I would say that weak might actually not be weak enough. Now, let me explain what I mean by that. As you look at this word for weak, weak can be mean a number of different things, evoke a lot of different expectations when you read it. So, for instance, if I have weak coffee, I'm expecting that that coffee still has maybe a little bit of caffeine in it. Still does a little bit of a job, just not good enough of a job. If my phone battery is weak on my iPhone, which it seems to always be, then I still expect, while it's weak, for me to be able to make a phone call. Maybe not many, but I can at least reach out a little bit. But as I looked up this word in a number of different translations, I found that this is the strongest of the weak words that are used. In fact, when I looked at the New American Standard, uh, it uses the word helpless here. Uh, I looked over at the NIV, it uses helpless as well. I looked at the New Living Translation, it uses utterly helpless. There was powerless in there. And then I looked it up in one of my dictionaries uh, of New Testament theology, and they explained that Paul here views weakness in the sense not merely of a relative quantity, but rather of an unqualified inability. So when Paul says, while we were still weak, he's not talking about time when we could only help God a little bit. We could make the slightest move towards God to help ourselves. He's speaking of the time when we were utterly helpless. Uh, Captain Reagan from the show Blue Bloods. I told you I love to watch that show. And I was watching it, and again, he was speaking to his priest, as he often does. And as he was talking to him, he threw out this line he's always using. He says, well, you know that God helps those who help themselves. And the priest doesn't respond. He just kind of looks at him and nods like, yeah, of course, everybody knows that. But here Paul says the gospel means that God helps the helpless, And Paul keeps at it as he's explaining. Notice he goes on to say, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Now, the perfectly righteous, eternal Son of God, he took on flesh as our spirit-anointed king. Every hero that we can come up with, every hero that Marvel will ever create, pales in comparison to Jesus Christ, God's Son. They all look weak next to him. But what does Paul mean by the right time, that he came at the right time? Well, some say it speaks of God's plan for Jesus to die. It's fitting in redemptive history, the way that he set forth to bring it about. Others look at it from the sense of those pitiful sinners saying that just in the nick of time, as they were almost over the cliff beyond, you know, retrieval, it's at that time that God saved the weak. 
Well, I was looking at one of my commentators this week. It was super helpful, Tom Schreiner. He said, uh, we probably don't need to face, or, or we don't probably face here a false dilemma if we're thinking it needs to be one or the other. See, God not only planned when Christ would die, but also had in mind the people for whom his death would be effective. But don't miss Paul's point here. He's telling the church in Rome that from eternity's past, God determined to send his son to die for or in the place of sinners. He sacrificed himself. He he came and stood in our place. He did this for us. And he did this before we made one movement towards seeking God's help. We didn't want it. We weren't looking for it. Didn't know we needed it. And yet God initiated salvation for the helpless and the hopeless. There was nothing in us in that moment to warrant Jesus giving his life for us. The the only thing that compelled God towards us was God and the great love with which he loved us. Does that make sense? Worldly loves usually make sense when you look at an object of your affections and there are likely a number of things that compel you to that person. But with God, it's almost as though we were like God repellent and yet he pushed through to love us despite ourselves. Now, Paul is offering in verse 7 a kind of illustration that is helping to demonstrate the nature of God's love. He says, essentially, humans rarely die for good people. Humans, they rarely die for good people. That's his experience. He writes in verse 7, For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. Now, some, as they look at this, they say that the righteous person is speaking of somebody who always does what is right, somebody who is respectable because they keep the rules. And the good person, they would say, is actually different. It describes a person whom we might love, like a spouse or a child, because they are good to us. So the explanation here of what this verse means to them would be, rarely someone dies for someone they respect. I mean, it happens, but it's a super rare thing that we take note of. And maybe a little less rarely you hear of someone dying for someone they love, someone who's good. I think it's more likely that the righteous person and the good person are are really the same person here that's being spoken of. But either way, I, I think that Paul is making his point clear. Here's the second thing that we see about the love of God that is so different about his love. He loved us as the murderous rebels who killed his son. He loved us then. He would have been just to pour out his wrath on humanity at any point, at any point. But he has poured out his boundless love upon us as is proved by the cross where his wrath was satisfied. Jesus said in Luke 5.32, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. There are no righteous people. And if you are righteous or think that you have a righteousness that can compel God towards you in any way, then you are not yet ready for the gospel. Jesus came for sinners. Sinners to come before him in humility and declare their need for him. And that's good news for us. That's good news that Jesus came for sinners. Catch what that means. Every once in a while, I hear someone say, 
They need to get their life straight in order, and eventually they will come to church and get things right with Jesus. Once these other things are cleaned up, once the house is clean, they'll come to Jesus. But don't miss this. Jesus died while you were still helpless enemies of God. He said, you can't clean it up enough to come to me. The harder you clean, the the dirtier it's going to get. Because then you're cleaning it with like self-righteousness Clorox or whatever. Like you need me. The cleanest thing you need, it only comes from Christ. There is only one baptism for believers. There is only one line to the baptismal waters. That for sinners saved by grace and grace alone. There is no baptismal line for pretty good people who God is excited to add to the team and then the others. So do you want a remedy to that sense that you are far from God and perhaps fear that God does not love you? Spend more time looking at God's word and meditating on God's grand display of his love for sinners at the cross. Listen to other people share their testimony of how God drew them and, and be in awe by the, the various ways that people has called, God has called people to himself. I've heard testimonies of God calling people to himself, whether they were high on meth, while they grew up in a Christian home and didn't know that they didn't know the gospel, God still saved them. Like, it is beautiful to see the various ways that God saves sinners who are trusting and looking to anything but him. Hear the voice of Charles Spurgeon as you're trying to stir your heart's affections towards God. He says, abide hard by the cross and search the mystery of his wounds. How? Why? Would an infinite, perfect, fully joyful, a God who experienced perfect love in the Trinity itself, why would he display mercy and love on a finite creature, enemy and rebel like me? It doesn't make sense according to human logic, but he says this, an increase of love to Jesus and a more perfect apprehension of his love to us is one of the best tests of growth in grace. And it only comes by looking to and studying the mystery of Christ's wounds. Now, sometimes we speak of love as irrational, as though it is this thing that we just kind of give ourselves to without thought. It's something that we can fall in of and out of. But notice that Paul is drawing a logical conclusion from God's love displayed at the cross. Third, the logic of the cross gives birth to assurance. That's what he says in verses 9 to 10. It gives, it gives birth to assurance. You'll notice he begins in verse 9, since therefore, and, and that therefore is there for a reason. I'm sure you never heard that before. But Paul is drawing a conclusion from Christ's death from us, and in these verses, verses 9 and 10, Paul is arguing from the, the greater display of the love of God displayed at the cross, he's arguing from that towards the lesser thing that God can do, which is give us assurance about the last day of God's wrath. And he, he highlights this with two realities. Uh, one is justification and the other is reconciliation. First, justification in verse 9. He says, since therefore... We have now been justified by his blood. Much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Now Paul first uses this 
judicial image here and says we've been justified by Jesus's blood. He's, he's highlighting the sacrificial nature of Jesus. And you're like, well, how do I understand the sacrificial nature of Jesus? Well, read the Old Testament, and that'll tell you about the sacrificial nature of Jesus. Jesus died in our place on the cross to assuage or satisfy God's just wrath for sinners. Jesus died to save a people for himself and make those sinners righteous. And this is highlighting the reality that guilty sinners now stand in right relationship with God. Now, here's how I think the logic works, okay? Now, hang with me. I think Paul's saying, if the amazing otherworldly love of God did the greater miracle of making sinners righteous and put them in right standing with God, then how much more confident can we be that that love of God will also save us from God's just wrath on the last day? I mean, God's going to finish what he started. Our future has been secured by the, the blood of Jesus. It holds better than Gorilla Glue. He's not going to let us go. He has stuck to us in Christ. Paul's not done, though. He considers another aspect of what the cross accomplished in verse 10, reconciliation. He says there, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. Reconciliation, that actually is highlighting here another aspect of what the cross brought about. Those who were formerly enemies of God, by faith in Christ who died on the cross, are friends of God. Now here's how the logic works here. If God did the greater thing of reconciling us to himself by the death of his son, while we were still enemies, how much more confident can we be that he will do the greater thing of saving us from the future wrath of God by his life, given that he has already poured his love on us and given us his spirit in verse 5? How can we not trust that he is going to finish what he has begun? Jesus defeated death when he was raised up from the dead as the possessor of eternal life. And it is by that life that we can be sure that we are friends of God in Christ forever. He will never let us go. Now see, Paul, I think here is working from the logic of the cross to an expectation of salvation on the last day where God's just, is, uh, just wrath is going to be visited on unrepentant sinners. He's working from the cross to the future. And he's assuring Christians that they are in right standing with God, if they put their faith in him. And they are now also friends of God. God initiated that before we desired to save ourselves. He, he initiated that before there was anything lovely in us. What is so amazing is that justification and reconciliation, uh, those are promises of blessings that were given to Israel. And here we find that this Jew and Gentile church of people who have put their faithful uh, their faith in Christ can say, this is true for all of us. You are straight with God if your faith is in Jesus Christ. You are good with Him. God is your friend in Christ. Isn't that good news? That, that Jesus is your friend. Have you ever believed the lie that Jesus is not your friend? Have you ever started to believe that Jesus is 
not for you. What do you do when you begin to believe that maybe your sin or, 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 or your bad experiences that you didn't even bring upon yourself or maybe Morse code of the reality that, that Jesus really isn't for you? How do you fight that? Look to the cross. Be reminded that the full love of God has been put on display and that God sent his son to die for you. That is confirmation that your status on Facebook has changed to inner relationship. You are a friend of God. You're no longer an enemy. You have God who is for you. No matter where you are geographically, if you are in Christ, God is for you. God's not a fair-weather friend. He's not going to leave you hanging on a good day or a bad day or the worst day ever. He is always with you and for you. God is the best kind of friend. Everything that you love about any friendship that you have, whether good or bad, they, all those things, all those things pale in comparison and only point us towards the greater friendship that we find with God. And of course, he's more than that as our father and as we are as children, but he is not less than the friend of the people of God. He stands next to his people to the very end. So let me ask you, what, what do you do when you're not feeling a relationship? I'm just wondering. What is your natural tendency? Is it to, to bolt? I need to get out of this? Is it like, you know, I need to, to get away, maybe find one of those Southwest tickets or something and fly somewhere far away? Anybody ever had that dream of just getting in a car and like riding until the, the road ends? I just need freedom. I don't know where to go. I just know that it's not here. I think the natural human response is to quit, to run, to move. It's not to abide, to seek Christ's face, pray, to meditate, to be still and know that God is God. Feelings are important, but our faith is grounded in the fact of God's love at the cross, not feeling. In fact, liberals in the 19th century, like Friedrich Schleiermacher, they actually found that people were stopping, the students, the intellectuals were stopping believing in the gospel because they found like dinosaur bones and they were like, you know, I just don't know. We've never seen somebody be raised up from the dead. I don't know if we can really trust in that kind of thing. Sounds like myth. So instead, what we need to do is explain to our students that our faith is not based in fact. It's based in feeling. We're just trying to give you kind of a feeling of the presence of God. Well, that is the heart of, of liberalism that says that feeling and fact are actually separated from one another. Now, I'm not here this morning to say that what you need is fact and no feeling. What I'm saying is that the facts should actually stir your feelings, not the other way around. But we need to look to the fact of the gospel and of the cross as the anchor of our soul. And, and we need that to be the thing that stirs our hearts rightly towards understanding the love of God and trusting him when our experiences all around us are bombarding us with lies that say that God does not love us. Paul tells us that when we're not feeling it, we need to take a deep look at Christ. We need to change our geography, not our religion. We need to look to the love of God on display at the cross. The cross of Christ gives birth to assurance in verses 9 and 10. It's assurance that Christ will hold us fast through the wrath of God on the last day. And if Christ will hold us on that day, he will hold us every day from now till then. See, when past sins try to convince us that God could not love us. Here's how the logic of the cross works. 
we look to the cross where God demonstrated his love to us while we were still sinners and enemies. Our status has changed. We are friends in right standing with God. How much more can we trust that he's for us now? When we think to ourselves that we are fearful of seeking help with present sins, you need to be reminded that God befriended sinners in the first place. He started helping you with this sin. He did it finally, climactically, and he continues to help us with our sin until he perfects us ultimately, removing our sin as far as the east is from the west on that last day when he returns. And when life is so full of suffering, you, you might wonder, does God love me? Here's the logic of the, Christ, of the cross. You remember that God has already demonstrated his otherworldly love for you by sending you his son, whom he loves eternally and infinitely, to die to save you from your sin. And when you fear that your faith is not strong enough to save you, look to God who saves those who can't help themselves. When you feel fear that you're facing death alone, remember that God is your friend and that Jesus lives. He lives. He, he never leaves you. Death does not conquer the love that he has for you. So when we consider the logic of the cross and what it means for our futures, finally, verse 11, it ought, if we're rightly thinking about it, it ought to cause us to boast in God, to rejoice in him. You'll notice in verse 11, that Paul could be responding to just verses 9 to 10, that we've been reconciled and justified. Or he could be pointing all the way back to verses 1 to 10, which I think he's doing. And he's, he's considering all of those things that are ours in Christ. You'll remember in verse 2, it says that we rejoice in hope of the glory of God, speaking of the future, but here... In verse 11, Paul says this, More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Now this verse carries a, a kind of doxological tone to it. It's, it's worship that is springing forth. The word for rejoice here is, is actually the same word for, for boast, to boast in. And you'll remember that the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. In Romans 1, the, the problem that all of humanity had was that they did not honor God as God, and that's why they were deserving of God's wrath. So let's carefully consider again why Christians should be hopeful, both in good times and in bad, according to Romans 5. Why are we boasting? What has he built up for us to this point? Well, one, God displayed his love for us by raising up his son on the cross to make us right with him while we were still sinners. Amazing love. Two, the cross declares that he will complete what he has begun in rescuing us for the coming wrath of God. Praise God. Third, verse five, God poured out his love into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, whom He has given to us. We have the presence of the Holy Spirit and the love of God lavished on us. Man, that is praiseworthy. See, our theology of the cross ought to work out into doxology if we're looking rightly at the cross. 
That reality, it ought to compel our hearts to hope in God in both good times and in bad. That's why Paul says that we ought to boast in Him. But how do we boast in God? You know, what practically does that look like? Well, I don't see any edges around this that are firm, so I think that you're free to boast in God in all the ways that you want to, in every situation in your life. But I would note that if you're wondering if your heart is in a place that maybe is not sensing the love of God, there are some indicators. One indicator is, is that you're critical. You're critical about your life. You're critical about others. You're critical about your job, your church, your spouse, your child. There's just a, a trend of, of criticalness. It's grumbling that kind of hums through your existence. It's not the beautiful sound of boasting in the God who has shown such amazing love to you that if we've really meditated on, begins to take over the nature of how we talk. And as our talk begins to slip into grumbling, it's that anchor that that sort of jerks us back to, but man, what, what love has been shown to me? See, God calls us to hope and boast in Him. How do we do that? Well, when Christians confess their sins, they boast in God who reconciles sinners to Himself by the power of the cross. Do you, do you see that? Even in confession, we are boasting in a God who doesn't throw away sinners, but loves them. When Christians share the gospel with non-Christians, we boast in the God who can save anyone. And we say, like, anybody can get in on this deal. That's boasting in God. When you encourage other Christians struggling to trust in God, you are boasting in God. When you boast in God in times of plenty and in want, good times and bad, you show a contentment that trust in God's love on display in the cross. When you sing songs and hymns and spiritual songs, when we do that collectively, we are collectively boasting in God. Charles Wesley wrote some 9,000 hymns, including the hymn, And Can It Be? And, and I love this song because it actually begins and ends like these verses do. In stanza one, he begins, And can it be that I should gain an entrance in my Savior's blood? Died he for me who caused his pain, for me who him to death pursued. Amazing love! How can it be that thou, my God, should die for me? But then he gets to stanza five, and he says this, No condemnation now I dread. Jesus and all in him is mine. Do you you see that? He moves from the cross to a sense of assurance, no condemnation for any more. And then he boasts in song about this. In fact, we're still joining Charles Wesley in boasting in God. See, Christian, you can be captivated by the grand gesture of God's love for you. Now, if you're not a Christian, you are still a sinner, ungodly, weak, and an enemy of God. But here's the good news. If you put your faith in Jesus Christ, who died for you, for your sins, and was raised from the dead, then you are invited to be a friend of God, to be in right standing with God. Your future can be, will be, incredibly bright in Christ. So don't leave here without putting your faith in Christ and talking to me about it. Let's go to the Lord in prayer as we prepare for communion. Pray with me. Father, this morning we come before you praising you that you have lavished your love on us. And Father, we pray that now you prepare our hearts as we go to the table 
a table prepared for those who were once enemies and rebels, but now are friends and sons of the living God. Lord, bless this time we pray. Amen. The following program is called Equipping the Saints, provided by ETS Ministry. Hello, Heart and Soul listeners. I'm Pastor Greg Lundstedt, and I'm so glad that I can share my series from Equipping the Saints with you. I pray that God will grow each and every one of you in Christ through this series. I was taught a philosophy of ministry in seminary about how to do church. This is one of the most grievous times of my walk with Christ, as Hillary, my wife, would surely share with you, because what I was being taught was not from the Word of God. I was being taught how to market people, how to use man's wisdom to basically do church. And ultimately, behind doing church was a philosophy of how we walk with the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, basically, when you shred away all the differences in philosophies, there are two basic philosophies on how to do ministry. There's God's way and there's man's way. There's nothing in between. It's either God's way or man's way. And we have God's way revealed in the Word of God. The Apostle Paul, as he was trying to reveal his love for the Corinthian church that had been wooed away by false apostles, shared that he was so quickly amazed in chapter 12 
that people had been pulled away from the simplicity of a devotion to Christ, the simplicity of a relationship with Jesus Christ through faith in what he has declared in his word. And there are many faith hucksters out there. There are the obvious ones like on TBN who turn faith into a means for you to get something from God. Now that's pretty obvious. And then there are those who teach a faith that is not based on Christ and on the Word of God, but based subtly on man's wisdom, which produces a dead faith, a faith that doesn't work, a faith that brings about whole congregations of either immature believers or non-believers who claim to be believers. But how is it we are to function as a body of Christ? How is it we are to walk with the Lord Jesus Christ? The answers are in the Word of God, and today I believe we're going to look at a passage in Titus chapter 1 in which we're going to see God's means for how we are to function in Christ. We're going to see how God brings about faith and how... He brings about the continuation of our knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, which encapsulates our relationship with him. Would you turn your Bibles to Titus chapter 1? It is apparent that the Apostle Paul is writing to Titus, verse 4, his true child in a common faith. It is apparent from that verse that the Apostle Paul led Titus to faith, faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And in Galatians 2, we see that Titus was a Greek. And although we don't know when Paul led him to the Lord, it is clear afterwards that the Apostle Paul brought Titus on some of his journeys. And in one of those journeys, he left Titus, as we see in verse 5, in Crete. He says, for this reason I left you in Crete. Obviously, the Apostle Paul and Titus had traveled together, and he had left him in Crete. Now, what was the occasion for this letter from the Apostle Paul to Titus? First of all, we see in verse 5 that there was a lack of leadership in Crete. Verse 5, for this reason I left you in Crete, that you might set in order what remains. There were things that were not done yet. There were things that needed to be done. And appoint elders in every city, elders plural, as I directed you. Paul is saying, here's one of the reasons why I'm writing you. Ultimately, I left you in Crete that you would appoint elders. And then he's going to explain the qualifications for elders. That's one of the reasons the Apostle Paul writes. Secondly, the text reveals that there are dangers in the church and that elders needed to be able to refute and exhort in sound doctrine. Why? Because there were those who were upsetting whole households, saying things they shouldn't say. And these elders were to be silencing these men from doing this. These men were worthless for any good deed, the end of chapter 1. And then thirdly, we see in chapter 2 that Paul writes concerning Christian conduct. We see ultimately how we are able to do what God says, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires, and then to live righteously and upright and godly in this present evil age. Paul writes the reason why and how we should be behaving. But then he gives some commands before that. In chapter 2, he gives commands for older men, older women, younger women, young men, and slaves. And lastly, we see in the book of Titus a thread running through the entire book that believers are exhorted to good deeds. Now, these are not good deeds like the world does good deeds. There's a lot of people that do not know Christ who are doing good deeds, quote-unquote. 
But this is behavior that comes forth from a heart that's submitted to the Lord Jesus Christ, one in which his grace is at work bringing about this godliness and righteousness in this present evil age. Listen to all the passages that have to do with good. Titus 1.8, the elders are to be loving what is good. And in contrast, the false teachers, 116, were worthless for any good deed. Oh, they were doing good deeds, but good deeds in God's eyes and sight. Chapter 2, older women are to be teaching the younger women what is good, and he'll explain that, and Lord willing, we will be able to see what that is. In the end of chapter 2, we see that Christ brought about our salvation in order that we would be, verse 14, zealous for good deeds. And in chapter 3, our salvation In the context of this great salvation, we have multiple exhortations to good deeds. 3.1, to be ready for every good deed. 3.8, Titus exhorted them confidently. Here, quote, so that those who have believed God may be careful to engage in good deeds. The book of Titus is an exhortation to the body of Christ to function within the context of what God was doing and is doing through Christ in us by his grace we saw that the Apostle Paul clearly understood his position and calling in Christ. That he was a bond slave, that he was an apostle of Jesus Christ, verse 1. And today we're going to continue that look at that greeting and look at the latter portion of verse 1, which is a portion of four verses which encompasses a greeting from the Apostle Paul to Titus. And I believe we're going to see today that the Apostle Paul understood why God had called him to be an apostle. And from that, we're going to see, ultimately, the work of the Word. Again, would you turn your Bibles to Titus chapter 1. Paul, a bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the faith of those chosen of God and the knowledge of the truth, which is according to godliness, in the hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised long ages ago, but at the proper time manifest even his word in the proclamation with which I was entrusted according to the commandment of God our Savior, to Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. Paul fully understood his position and calling in Christ. Verse 1, Paul, a bond servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. And if you remember, the word bondservant in Greek was the word doulos. And it's sometimes translated servant, bondservant, or slave. But if you remember, this term simply means slave. It is someone under the authority of a master. Here the Apostle Paul made it clear that he was a bondservant of God. And in many other passages, we see that the Apostle Paul was a bondservant of Jesus Christ. We looked at five other passages in which he identified himself as a doulos of God. And any true believer we saw in Scripture is a doulos of God. We are slaves of a good master. We're either going to be a slave to sin or we're going to be a slave to a good and gracious God who gave himself for us. And it's your choice. You're going to be a slave to someone. You're going to be controlled. You're going to obey someone. You're either going to obey your own lusts and desires, and the result of that is death, or you're going to obey the will of God revealed in His Word, and the result of that is life. If you've been saved, you have been bought with the price, the precious blood of Jesus Christ. 
then you're a bond slave of a good master, the Lord Jesus Christ. I want to ask you, do you see yourself as a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ? If you do see yourself as a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ, then you have no rights. You have been bought with a price. You are not your own, as Paul would say, but you've been bought by a good master, the Lord Jesus Christ. Secondly, Paul identifies himself as an apostle of Jesus Christ. The term apostle, apostolos, derived from apostello. Apo means from and stello means to send. The word came to mean sent one. Now the New Testament uses this word, apostolos, in two basic ways. First of all, one who is sent or simply a messenger. And sometimes it's translated apostle when it simply means sent one, i.e. Acts 14.14, 2 Corinthians 8.23. But secondly, the word is used more often than not to designate the official office of an apostle, those chosen specifically by Jesus. And Scripture reveals that he had commissioned 12 himself, and I believe ultimately as planned, replaced Judas, the son of perdition, with the Apostle Paul, commissioning him on the Damascus Road. Now, if you remember the Apostle Paul, Saul, which was his name, he had it all. Religiously, he had credentials longer than any religious person. If anyone could trust in the flesh, Paul, he says, I far more, if anyone could put confidence in the flesh. But he considered all those earthly religious attributes to be as dung in light of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, in which he did suffer the loss of all things. Paul met Jesus, the risen Lord. He appeared to him on the Damascus road and called him unto himself. Now, Scripture tells us that true apostles were personally chosen by Jesus Paul shares in 1 Corinthians 9.1, Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? One qualification of a true apostle. Scripture also reveals that true apostles, that their apostleship was authenticated by signs and wonders. And obviously Paul is dealing with the Corinthian church in which there were false apostles. And he says in 2 Corinthians 12.12, The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with all perseverance by signs and wonders and miracles. There are many people who claim to be apostles these days. There are many people who claim to be prophets these days. But are there any more apostles, quote-unquote, and prophets, quote-unquote? Ephesians 2.20. Paul is addressing the Ephesian Gentile church and showing them that they are now in the family of God through faith in Christ. And he says, so then, verse 19, Ephesians 2, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household, having been built upon, that's an aorist tense, it's already happened, having been built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Very important verse for our theology and understanding of prophets and apostles. Now remember, the church is not a building, but we have that illustration and analogy. The church is the body of Christ, those who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ. And it is Jesus Christ who builds his church. He said, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overpower it, Matthew 16, 18. Christ is the cornerstone. He is the head of the church. He is the cornerstone of the foundation. You can't be in the church unless you are in Christ. 
but yet he builds his church upon a foundation, that foundation being the apostles and prophets. Now you say, what means does Christ build the church? Ultimately, he builds it on that foundation through what the apostles and prophets brought forth, which was the word of God. Christ builds his church through the word of God, which was laid by the apostles and prophets. We are being built upon that foundation. And if you build on any other foundation than that, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, it's wood, hay, and stubble. It's worthless. If you build a church on anything other than what God has declared in his word... In the church, I mean people being built up as the body of Christ. It is wood, hay, and stubble. It is worthless. The foundation has been laid. Indeed, we are brought into a relationship with Christ through the Word of God. In the exercise of His will, He brought us forth by the Word of God, right? We were born again through the living and abiding Word of God, right? First Peter chapter 1. And we grow in respect to salvation, First Peter 2.2. 2. By the word. And it is the word, 1 Thessalonians 2.13, that does its work in us. Therefore, Christ being the very cornerstone laid the foundation of the church by giving his spirit-empowered word through the apostles and prophets. The foundation is laid. There's no more foundation, no more apostles and prophets, just like any type of a building. You lay the foundation, it's done, and you build upon it. And now it is being built upon this foundation, the Word, revealed Word. And I believe Scripture is clear from this verse. And also Second Peter chapter 2, verse 1, we see that there were false prophets and there will be false teachers. There were false prophets. Now there will be false teachers. Now there is the teaching of the revealed Word of God. Scripture is clear. The foundation's been laid. We have the completed Word. The faith once for all delivered to the saints the body of doctrine that the saints believe in concerning Christ, the faith, Jude would write. It has been laid. There are no more apostles and prophets, just teachers teaching what was laid in the foundation. Does that make sense? Just teachers teaching what was laid in the foundation. When all is said and done, apostles of the Lamb, they are Jesus Christ's apostles, there are only twelve. And they are in the foundation stones in that verse in this new Jerusalem we see very symbolic of what they did. So then the apostles were personally chosen by Christ. They saw the risen Lord. They laid the foundation of the church by declaring his word revealed to them. And Paul was an apostle of Christ Jesus or Jesus Christ by the will of God. That leads us to our text today in which I believe we're going to see that Paul also understood why God had called him to be an apostle. Clearly, pastors and teachers ought to understand why they had been called to be pastors and teachers, right? Paul understood as an apostle why God had called him to be an apostle. And we need to understand why God calls us to do and serve in the gifting that he has gifted us. But this is very important because this is the foundation of the church. It is the foundation. Again, verse 1. Paul, a bondservant of God an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the faith of those chosen of God and the knowledge of the truth, which is according to godliness. Now, if we go through verses 1 through 4, it is a very complex sentence. And Paul gives us very long run-ons, which are hard to unpack, which the untaught and unstable distort to their own destruction, uh, Peter would write in Second Peter chapter 3. 
But we need to be diligent to show ourselves approved as workmen who handle the word accurately. And first of all, we're going to see, I believe, the purpose for Paul's apostleship. Notice why he was an apostle. Middle of verse 1, the first phrase. You're going to see two phrases, I believe, that are in parallel. The first phrase, for the faith of those chosen of God. Now, the second phrase also is for ultimately for the knowledge of the truth, which is according to God in this. Two, two reasons here, I believe. Now, the word translated for here is not your usual Greek word for for. It's a different Greek word. It's a preposition, kata. And it's with the accusative case. And you're going, okay, what does that mean, kata, with the accusative case? It means when this preposition is with a certain Greek case, it's translated a certain way. Now, if it was with the genitive, ultimately the preposition would be speaking of down upon, directional. But here it can be translated three different ways. First of all, according to. That's how the New King James actually translates this verse. They say, Paul, apostle of Jesus Christ, according to. Secondly, it could be translated for the goal or purpose of something, like two or four. Paul, an apostle, for this reason, basically. And that's how the NASB translates it. And lastly, it could be translated in respect of. Paul, in respect to the faith of those chosen of God. So which way is it? Which way is the best and right translation here? Well, first of all, Paul is an apostle in accordance with the knowledge of the truth and the faith, right? That's that's true. You could translate it both ways, and it is true. But is it possible that Paul is an apostle to the goal or purpose of the faith of those chosen? Is he an apostle for the reason, for the faith of those chosen, and for the knowledge? I actually prefer the latter. I believe that's what he's saying. And I believe although Scripture points out both things, that the latter is more accurate in this verse. You say, why do I believe that? Ultimately, because it's apparent in Scripture that Paul's apostleship was for the building of the body of Christ, which is in the context of knowing Christ, and that building of the body is through the word of God, by faith in Jesus Christ. Listen to why God gave apostles in Ephesians 4, and why don't you thumb over to there also. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11. And he gave some, and here he's going to give a list, and it's all preceded by the word some. Some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, and some as, not pastors and some as teachers, but some as pastors and teachers, pastor teachers. Now, why did he do that? For the equipping of the saints, for the work of service, to the building up of the body of Christ. And now here's the goal. Until we attain the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. Boy, that sounds really familiar to our passage. Faith, ultimately, and the knowledge of the truth, the knowledge of the Son of God. He gave these gifts with this goal in mind. He gave apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastor, teachers with this goal, the equipping of the saints, with the goal of the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. And I believe that's what he's talking about here. Paul, a bondservant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the faith of those chosen of God, ultimately, and the knowledge of the truth which is according to godliness. I believe Paul was appointed an apostle with the purpose or goal, first of all, for the faith of those chosen of God. And you say, okay, well, what does that mean? Let's unpack what he's saying here. 
First of all, in Scripture, the term the faith could be speaking, as I shared earlier, of the body of doctrine that true believers believe, right? The faith. This is the faith once for all delivered to the saints. It is the body of truth that Jude encourages and exhorts the church to contend for. The faith, it's what we believe that has been delivered once for all to the church. We are now ending our Unity in Christ broadcast. Thank you for listening, and I look forward to being with you again next week.